Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we look to go behind the headlines to work out what's really going on in the most interesting part of the world. I'm Andrew People. Well, if there are two words that capture the past eight months in Asia, COVID-19 would certainly be one and China would, of course, be another. Beijing's rows with Washington on various fronts continue to shake both the region and the world more broadly. And China's own domestic, economic and political trajectories remain the curiosity of all Asia watchers. So before the summer ends, we at Asia Matters thought it would be a good time to recommend some recent books on Asia and in particular on China to take on holiday. Later in this episode, we'll talk to Michael Schumann, whose fascinating new book, Superpower Interrupted, provides a history of China seen from Chinese people's point of view. And we'll chat with Tom Orlick in his new book, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. He turns the normal predictions of demise for the Chinese economy on their head and instead explains what holds it all together. But first, I'm going to speak to Ling Ling Wei, who, along with her colleague Bob Davis from the Wall Street Journal, has written in Superpower Showdown, the definitive account of the trade war between the US and China. It's a must read for anyone wanting to understand the current state of relations between the world's two greatest powers. And Ling Ling joins us now to talk to us more about it. Ling Ling, thanks so much for your time again today. Listeners to Asia Matters will know that you've been on the show before, and it's I know you referred to the book last time you were on, and now it's really here, and it's the great read. I wanted to start by asking you, you talk about it at the start of your book, but there's a sort of real personal interest in this story, the story of US-China relations for you. Can you just explain your own personal background and why it means so much to you personally? Sure. Thank you, first of all, Andrew, for having me on. Really a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, writing this book, uh, one of the most amazing parts is really, you know, we were able to blend our personal stories a little bit with the broader U.S.-China relationship we're illustrating in the book. You know, my colleague Bob, his family story is a story of a middle-class American family you know, how that family suffered from greater Asian competition. Uh, many years later, when Bob was uh, talking about, you know, his experience of covering global trade, he just, you know, realized he actually was writing about something that bankrupted his family. For my end, I am uh, one of the examples of how, especially my generation, benefited from China's economic rise and a closer relationship with the West, especially the U.S. I was born and uh, raised in China and, you know, was able to go to college uh, in Shanghai and really seize the opportunity to come to the United States to study in the late 90s and stayed here, got a job with the Wall Street Journal, became American citizen and went back to China trying to practice independent reporting until very recently. So for a long time, I really looked at myself as, you know, one of the examples of how close the relationship between the two world powers could have benefited uh, individual Chinese, and in some cases, Americans as well. You know, there are many Americans who went to China and got really better understanding of this rising superpower and good experiences there. But now I found myself really 
becoming sort of like a collateral damage uh, right. from this uh, political crossfire. So, you know, in a way, um, small but remarkable kind of way, our own experiences mirrored the ups and downs of the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, because we should say that you're, along with several other colleagues from the Wall Street Journal, you were sent home from China earlier this year, right? right? As part of these growing tensions between the two countries. Right. Most American journalists working for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and Washington Post were kicked out earlier yeah. this year. So in the book, then, you actually do trace quite a lot of the history of those trade relations and diplomatic relations between the US and China. So was this sort of personal story that you and Bob both had part of the reason that you really wanted to go back and really explain the background to what's been happening over more recent years with President Trump and Xi Jinping? Both Bob and I, as you know, Andrew, we have been covering the whole souring of the trade relationship for the past two years. So it just occurred to us, you know, in addition to really trying to keep up with the news, daily coverage of this enormously important saga, it just occurred to us, why don't we write a book, have a deeper dive into the history of the relationship, why we are where we are today. So that really is the trigger for the book. And to the extent that we got to um, really kind of incorporate what we experienced personally into this broader history, the better. And that's one of the most rewarding parts as well. Now, Ling Ling, what's marked out your reporting over the years from China has been your incredible access that you've had to some of the senior figures in Beijing and policymakers and the incredible insights that you've had into Chinese thinking about the economy and about their relationship with the US and so on. But one thing that comes across as you read the book is a sense that within those circles in Beijing, within those top circles, they really kind of misread the US, particularly in the last few years. What do you think they particularly got wrong? What did they underestimate about what was going on politically back in the US? You're exactly right, especially at the beginning of the trade war. There was a lot of uh, misunderstanding on the Chinese part of how much the US has changed, you know, mm. how much the US politics and how much the attitude of Americans toward China has changed. There's so much hubris in Beijing these days, especially after the 08 financial crisis. Right. You know, back then, President uh, George W. Bush recall up Chinese President Hu Jintao twice in one month, basically trying to persuade him to help Bush get the global economy, global markets out of funk. So that's the coming of age moment for China. China did do a lot, you know, not only shielded its own economy from the global financial crisis, but also helped pull the global economy out of recession. So what China experienced back then basically helped the leadership getting more confident in its own system, this whole China-led model. They think it worked. 
you know, for all those years, the American economic model had been something to be emulated by the Chinese leadership. Not anymore. They think、mm. they have come to their own, and now it's China's time to shine. So over the years, they always thought no multinationals, including U.S. companies, could afford to lose the access to China's market, which perhaps is true in certain、yeah. in a sense. But they underestimated the change in attitude among even just ordinary Americans. It's not just Republicans or Democrats. It's actually both parties have reached this consensus, and even American businesses, right? For the longest time, we used this、uh, schoolyard fight analogy. You know, the businesses are all always like、uh, the Chinese size bodyguard. No longer,、mm. even the big、uh, U.S. companies thought what Beijing had been doing was too much to bear. You know, the、yeah. theft of intellectual property, the limitations on market access for foreign businesses. You know, it became increasingly harder for the businesses to bear. So there was a tremendous、uh, changing attitude among U.S. corporations as well. So that all explained why, especially initially, you know, the Chinese leadership underestimated the challenges posed by the Trump administration. It's not just Trump; it started way before him. Yeah, I wonder too, as well. Something else that I got from the book, at least, was a sort of、uh, sense in Beijing. That on the one hand they still see themselves as a kind of developing economy, and you know we've even seen recently Li Keqiang talk about how many people in China still are quite poor, really, by international standards. But at the same time, they want to be seen as the world's second largest economy, as a sort of superpower that's returned to global prominence. And so there's a sort of dual track going on here. Is that fair comment? I mean, that's something that I got from the book, at least. Sure, very sharp observations by you, Andrew. Definitely, there have been quite a few contradictory signals coming out of Beijing. I think it probably just shows different opinions among senior leaders. But after all, is the very top guy that matters the most, which is President Xi Jinping. You know, for、mm. him, in the book, we kind of. Portrayed him as the most forceful, powerful, ideologically driven, and least pragmatic Chinese leader in recent history. Yeah,、uh, I, I believe that really is the case. You know, his agenda is very much focused on this、uh, so-called China dream. It's about having a very strong, unified China, economically, technologically, militarily. Geopolitically, so in his view, China is very, very close to realizing this goal of great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So he thinks China has already arrived.、Mm. Compared to many years ago, especially one compare and contrast we did in this book was comparing this recent showdown. Was back in the late nineties when China was negotiating with the U.S. about getting into the WTO. Back then, the leadership Jiang Zemin had、mm. very much pragmatic agenda, which、right. getting integrated with global economy. You know, in essence, which meant mostly the Western developed world. 
So back then, it was really just trying to develop the economy, liberalize the market, grow as much as we could. So very economically focused agenda, pragmatic, you know, in a lot of ways. But now it's China model, China dream. Yeah.、Right? So it's more ideologically driven. What's your reading of how she has come out of this domestically? Then, do you think it's kind of reinforced his power? This sticking up to the U.S. and negotiating hard, or has he actually become a little bit more vulnerable? Do you think? What What's your reading of internal politics in Beijing? Always tricky to understand at the best of times, but where do you think things stand? I think overall, Xi Jinping has further rallied support. For、mm. his rule by using this trade war, obviously, if you talk to some market-oriented, more liberal type of thinkers, they would tell you a different story. There's a lot of frustrations about lack of reform in China. Many people still had very big interest in seeing U.S. and China getting closer to each other, as opposed to drifting apart. So you know there is a sense of、uh, disappointment, frustration among certain elite circles. However, overall, among the 老百姓 which means ordinary people,、yep. the support for Xi Jinping is very strong. The pandemic helps also because you know even though China initially was widely regarded as having mishandled the pandemic, but it did do a Much better job later on. It was the、mm. first country that came out of it, and now its economy is on a reshaped recovery. And when it comes to the trade war and the broader fight with the U.S., the one point I want to stress is: you know, in the past, foreign pressure was good for reforms in China. Not anymore. Under、mm. Xi Jinping, foreign pressure was seen really bad for reform, and it just further strengthens this narrative of. The U.S. trying to take down China or keep keep it from rising. So this narrative is really taking hold in China today. And people thought, you know, it's great to have a strong leader like him who can stand up to the American hegemon. And now you're back in the U.S. What's your read about the outlook now? Even if we get, say, a President Biden next year. Do you still think, though, that this U.S.-China these tensions are now a feature rather than a bug? It's something that's going to be with us for a little while now. I think probably for many years to come. No matter who is in the White House for the next four years or longer, I think the kind of hostility and confrontation is here to stay. The Chinese officials often say that the ball is in the U.S. court, but. Not at all. The ball is in both countries' courts, right? Yeah. So China, obviously, one of the big reasons why Washington has become increasingly hardline this stance on China is because China's own actions, this crackdown on civil liberty in Hong Kong, the mass detentions of Muslims in Xinjiang, and increasing assertive positions is taking. With neighboring countries, all those combined helped explain the increasing hostility between those two countries. President Xi Jinping has said before that there are a thousand reasons to get the U.S.-China relationship right, not one single reason to spoil it. 
well, let's hope he still means it and take some concrete actions to help rebuild trust. It doesn't take one to tango, it takes two to tango. Absolutely. Well, I'll look forward to your next book on the, the next chapter in these uh, relations. Ling Ling, thanks so much for your time. I could talk to you all day about this. It's a fascinating book. I really recommend all of you out there listening to this podcast get hold of a copy, particularly if you're interested in what's going on, the biggest story really in the world right now. Ling Ling, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Andrew. Really a pleasure. So the highly experienced Asia journalist Michael Schumann has a new book out titled Superpower Interrupted. In the book, Michael takes us on a journey through Chinese history from the point of view of the Chinese people themselves, in turn helping to explain much about contemporary attitudes in China towards the country's own politics and international relations. Well, Michael joins us now to tell us more. Michael, congratulations on the book. It's a terrific and really engaging read. It tells us a lot about the value of understanding how people in different countries view their own history. But you take us in the book through thousands of years of Chinese history, really. So explaining how you structured the book, maybe you can tell us first why you felt it was so important to go so far back into China's past. Yeah, I mean, what's really fascinating about Chinese history is how far back some of the most critical ideas that the Chinese have had about themselves and about the world around them really go. I mean, some of these ideas go all the way back to the time of Confucius, which is, you know, 2,500 years ago, some of them even earlier. So by the time, you know, the emperors came around more than 2,000 years ago, these ideas were already pretty prevalent. They entered into the imperial system. They became part of the governing ideology, and they influenced the way the uh, emperors ran their foreign policy. And these ideas then stuck, basically, through the entire imperial period, and to a certain extent, they're even around in modern times. And so then in the book, you take us through how those ideas persisted, but also developed. Just one other question on the motivation for writing the book. I mean, why did you feel that it was so important to tell Chinese history from the point of view of the Chinese people themselves? I started thinking about how history is is taught, right? I mean, I'm American, and when I went to high school, my choices uh, were to learn American history and American history. Right. Other parts of the world kind of entered into that narrative, but only when they were kind of somehow touched that narrative. And I, I felt that other people in other parts of the world, I think, learned history the same way. And this strand of history that you're on, that, that you learn, I think it very much shapes the way that you see the world. So I think people in the U.S. and Europe have a certain prism and they understand the world today and their history through that prism. And then the Chinese have their own prism and they see the world through that prism. And it can often be quite different. You look at the same events in very, very different ways. So I think if you really want to understand what China wants today, where the Chinese are going and how they see things, then you have to kind of get behind their prism and see things through that prism to really understand it. Yeah, I think it's a really important contribution. As somebody who also did a lot of history at school and university in Britain, I feel very much the same, that you learn British history and you learn it in the British way. You learn the British viewpoint, and it's only by going out into the world and you realize, of course, that other people in other countries have different ways of looking at things. You argue then in the book that through China's long history, there are consistencies in the way that the Chinese people have viewed themselves and their position in the world. What would you highlight as the main themes that really came through as you were writing the book? Well, one idea that dates back a very long way is the idea that the Chinese felt that their civilization was superior to others, that basically 
Chinese civilization was civilization, and therefore, by definition, everything else was, of course, uncivilized. And this created a view of the world in which things were a hierarchy. And the Chinese were on top of that hierarchy, of course, because that was their rightful place. So what the Chinese developed was a worldview in which not only were they very often a great power, but in their own kind of self-perception, they believe that they have the right to be a great power. Mm. And when you see that play out o- over history, I think what's really remarkable about Chinese history is, is how often the Chinese were actually able to rebuild themselves into a great power. You know, not China, not every single century was a great political power or military force. They were invaded, the dynasties fell into chaos, that kind of thing. But again and again and again, the Chinese were able to restore their power. And a lot of that was based on this idea that that's actually where China should be in the world. Yeah, it's really fascinating because this sort of sense of superiority, in a sense, persists, even though there are lots of instances through Chinese history where they get overrun, often from the north, by various sort of barbarians, as they called them. But yet there was a resilience to this idea that China was sort of at the apex of a global hierarchy. When do you date the emergence of that? sense? Is it something that comes through in the sort of time of Confucius, or does it come earlier? When do you see that as sort of first emerging? You can find that idea in some of the kind of the earliest writings that we have from China, actually, including in the Analects, Confucius talks about this idea himself. There was this idea that not only was Chinese civilization superior, but that it was transformative, that if other peoples learn Chinese ways, then that would somehow transform them out of being barbarians into the civilized world. And this idea survives through all kinds of political and economic change and upheavals. As, as you said, the Mongols, of course, in, invaded the entire country. And I, I think it survived because very often these other peoples who had contact with China tended to absorb those ideas. They adopted certain aspects of Chinese civilization, maybe not yeah. 100%. And and I think that kept the perception alive that they're so okay, maybe we lost on the battlefield, but in terms of civilization, we're we're still on top. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? And from that sort of develops in part this tribute system that operated for hundreds, thousands of years really, where leaders of different regions and countries were expected to come and pay regular tribute to the Chinese emperor. It seems an extraordinarily high-handed approach. And yet, at the same time, China often, it seems at least, doesn't seem to have imposed its will through aggression on its neighbors. Do you think that's a fair interpretation? And how does that maybe inform the debate today about China's intentions towards its neighbors? I think uh, we in the West have kind of an incorrect perception of what the tribute system is. First of all, the term itself. Is very controversial because it's not a term that the Chinese actually used. And it's one of those terms, if you put a bunch of Chinese historians in, in, into a room, they'll probably get into a fistfight over it. But as you said, it was a common practice in Chinese foreign affairs that other peoples had to come and, and basically express their acknowledgement of Chinese superiority. And we tend to, in the West, think of this as a bunch of terrified ambassadors coming and kowtowing before the emperor. But I think the way that we need to think of it is more like the rules of the game. Right. This is how diplomacy worked in East Asia, and these were the accepted forms of diplomacy. 
And in real life, it didn't really work in the way that it sounds, where, you know, the Chinese didn't really necessarily always at least treat their neighbors as vassals. This was a much more kind of balanced and equal relationship in many respects. So I think people in, in the U.S. and Europe don't quite understand what the troopy system really was. Today, you mentioned the modern day, you know, the Chinese government would never admit to even thinking about reimposing these ideas on their neighbors. But, you know, when you look at how the Chinese deal with, for example, South Korea and Vietnam, nations that had traditionally participated in this system, you can see, you know, elements where the Chinese think that they can fully push their neighbors into doing what they want, uh, not always successfully, but you can see it in kind of the tone and attitude of their foreign relations. Absolutely. Do you think, though, that what Chinese history can tell us, does it tell us anything about whether China is really an expansionist power? I mean, that's a big debate at the moment. That's a big question, of course. But, uh, yeah. where, no, it, where, you know, from writing the book, how did you sort of come out in that debate? It's an interesting question because, you know, the average Chinese nationalist will tell you that the Chinese were always a peaceful power and never invaded anybody. And, of course, that's, that's a bunch of nonsense. Yes, there were a lot of wars the Chinese fought that were defensive, but there were long stretches of Chinese history where they were quite an aggressive military power and had armies marching through Central Asia and Southeast Asia. I think what's becoming more and more clear, I think even in just the last few months, that the Xi Jinping government doesn't just see itself as a regional power or a rising power, but they do have global ambitions to be a great power. When you look at how the influence that they're trying to wield, for example, the World Health Organization and other international organizations, the way they're getting involved in diplomacy in different parts of the world. So, you know, when you say expansionist, I don't necessarily think the Chinese want to go out and conquer everybody. But I think their view is definitely expanding outside of their immediate region into being a truly global power. One thing that does seem to fluctuate, it seemed to me, through the book, is the Chinese attitudes to what it means to be Chinese. There seem to be times when there's a more inclusive view of what it means to actually be Chinese. And at times that view, though, becomes slightly narrower and more based around pan-nationalism. Do you think, again, that's fair comment? And, and where would you say we stand on that score today? You know, I think most societies go through periods of great openness to the world and periods of isolation and xenophobia. You know, I think the Chinese have a reputation being basically isolationist. These are the people who built the Great Wall to keep out foreigners. It's really not like that. I mean, there have been periods of Chinese history. As a matter of fact, some periods of the Chinese themselves look back on as being their most glittering periods, like the Tang Dynasty, were also periods when China was most open. But of course, as you said, then there's periods, for example, during the Ming Dynasty where things seem to kind of reverse and there was a, they tried to kind of be much more separate from the rest of the world. I feel like the pendulum is kind of in mid-swing on that, mm. where you know you can see the Deng Xiaoping reform period as one of the great periods of, of openness. And Deng himself equated China's problems with its closed-door policy. Now I feel under the Xi Jinping government, maybe it's swinged back to the opposite, where China is becoming more close to the world, more intent on doing things, you know, on its own and more nationalistic. Based on Chinese history, I don't think that really bodes well for China's progress, economically especially. But that does seem to be where things are headed at the moment. Interesting. You mentioned Deng Xiaoping there. In one of your later chapters, you uh, which you call Making China Great Again, 
you talk about some of the 20th century efforts to put China back where it belongs, at least from the Chinese point of view. You actually spend quite a lot of time on Deng and comparatively little, I thought, on Mao Zedong, who was obviously a towering figure in many histories of China. Can you just talk a little bit about why you chose that relative emphasis? The fact is that Mao kind of failed to make China back into a great power. I mean, that, that's what yeah. he wanted to do. And his, his economic agenda was almost a complete and utter disaster. China in the 1970s was a terribly poor place. It was tremendously out of date in its industry and technology and basically isolated from the world. So, yes, you know, he unified China after a terrible period of war and kind of built the People's Republic. But in terms of making China great again, he's not the guy who did it. The ideas that Deng had about the need to basically embrace the world, which is an idea that Mao, of course, did not have. Deng realized that if China was going to be great again, that it needed to form a partnership with the world's great powers in a, in a very, very different way than Mao had. So it's really the, the early Deng years, that's a turning point that got China to where it is today. And then just bringing us to that present day, where do you see the big continuities in Xi Jinping's approach from China's past, and where do you see the sort of difficulties he faces in implementing that historical view of China? Xi Jinping definitely knows his history. He, he talks about it all the time. You know, when you look at his idea of the Chinese dream, it's a fantastically vague concept, but it really boils down to uh, the restoration of Chinese greatness. He is trying to put himself and his government into this longer historical narrative. He's trying to connect it to China's past. And he's painting his government as basically a successor state to these old powerful dynasties. We talk about China as an emerging market and a rising power. But another way of thinking of it is that this is another one of those imperial restorations that happened from time to time when China emerged from a period of weakness and rebuilt itself into a great power. The situation today has dramatically changed after the ascendance of the West. You know, the China is rising, you know, in a world that looks very different than it had in the past, where its neighbors don't really look to China anymore in the way that they used to as, as kind of a model or a partner. Uh, they're generally allied to the U.S. and the West. You know, the U.S. and Europe have remade the way diplomacy works and remade the way the global economy works. So China is trying to restore its power in a global environment that is, I think, significantly different than in the past when other, other rising dynasties tried to restore their power. And I think that's a big challenge for them. Yeah, sort of clash of civilizations that maybe they didn't have in the past. Michael, it's an absolutely fantastic book for anyone who's interested in going out and buying it. It's published by Hatchet and it's available in all good bookstores and all good online vendors. Thanks so much for taking the time again and good luck with the book. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate it. So we're joined now by Tom Orlick. Tom is the chief economist at Bloomberg and he's now based in Washington, D.C. But for many years, he was based in Beijing, where he covered the Chinese economy, both for Bloomberg and, of course, for the Wall Street Journal, where the two of us knew each other. Tom has a fantastic new book out. It's called China, the Bubble That Never Pops. And it's really seeking to address the question as to why China's economy manages to stay on the road, despite all the dire predictions that you often read from analysts and from commentators about how the whole thing is going to come crashing down at any moment. So it's a terrific read. And Tom joins us from Washington today. Thanks so much for making the time, Tom. Can you just explain the main thesis behind the book 
and why you decided to write it from this point of view. Well, thanks very much for having me on the show, Andrew. Great to be here. So I lived in China for 11 years, from 2007 to 2018. And for that whole time, there was a thread of doom running through the Western analysis uh, on China's economy. Yes, people said growth of 10% looks impressive, but if you poke beneath the surface, it's a bubble. It's all financed by debt. That debt is being allocated to zombie state-owned enterprises, to real estate developers building ghost towns in the desert, to local governments building bridges and roads to nowhere. Uh, and so it's going to come crashing down. And as we continue to recite those dire predictions, China's economy continues to grow, China's wealth continues to rise, China's influence globally continues to expand. So my motivation when I put pen to paper for the book was mainly the hope that I'd one day be able to appear on your podcast. So, <laughs> so mission accomplished there. Um, but also, it's a noble um, goal. many are called, few are chosen. It was also to try and explain how does China continue to defy the doubters? What are the sources of strength in the Chinese system that we don't recognize or we don't pay enough attention to? And what are those sources of strength? What's your basic understanding of why the show stays on the road despite all these predictions of disaster? So when we look at China's financial system, we focus all of our attention on the asset side of banks' balance sheets. We look at loan growth and how overall lending has expanded really quickly. And we look at how lending has been allocated to really low quality borrowers, state-owned enterprises that don't make any profits, real estate developers building apartment blocks, which they have difficulty selling. And when we look at that side of the financial system, there are enormous problems more problems than, than we see in the official data. But what we don't recognize is that for a financial crisis to happen, you need problems on the asset side of banks' balance sheets, you need bad loans, but you also need problems on the liability side of bank balance sheets. You need banks to run out of funding. Uh, if right. we think about the Lehman shock in 2008, Lehman Brothers fell over because they made a bunch of bad investment decisions. They bought a bunch of mortgage-backed securities, which were worth less than they realized. But also, Lehman fell over because they ran out of funds. And in China, there are abundant problems on the asset side of banks' balance sheets. There is a lot of hidden bad loans. But on the funding side of bank balance sheets, because China saves such a high share of its national income, and because capital controls make it hard to take that money offshore, funding mm. for China's banks is just really stable. And so the trigger for crisis just is never there. I think one of the really interesting things about your book is that you have, you litter it with lots of on the ground reporting and experiences that you've had. But one of the most interesting things really is the way you draw on your experience of playing table tennis. You play table tennis to quite a high level in China. Just tell us what insights that gave you into how China works more broadly. I'm, I'm just going to quibble with your characterization of anecdotes as littered around the book, Andy. I would say <laughs> they were kind of studied or like embossed or some other more positive sounding word. But um, coming on to the, the table tennis question, 
I spent a lot of time in China playing table tennis, and there's a bunch of problems with China's national table tennis system. They've got a kind of inhuman approach to training. Uh, if you want to make it as a table tennis player, you need to drop out of school when you're 10 and spend all day doing these mechanistic drills to get your strokes and your footwork correct. You need to bribe a coach to get into a professional team. At the top level of the support sport, there's kind of nepotism and political infighting to decide who the national coach is going to be. And yet, China's table tennis players are the best in the world. They always um, win, right? Always win, yeah. Even the people who sometimes beat them, it turns out they're Chinese as well. So sometimes <laughs> like the, the Singaporean women's team beats the Chinese team and you think, that's strange, how did that happen? And it turns out the Singapore national team is the Chinese B team who emigrated to Singapore because they couldn't get into the Chinese A team, but they wanted to play at an international level. So they always win. Why is that? Well, there's two things that China really has in its favor. First, an enormous talent pool. You've got 1.3 billion people. They all try table tennis. So the national team is selecting from the biggest talent pool in the world. And then secondly, a really determined approach to training and advancing what you might call the technology frontier in table tennis. So if the Chinese team finds a player somewhere else in the world, Germany or Japan, who has like a really cool serve or an innovative shot, they'll take out the video camera, record them, bring the video back to their training center, break it down, master it themselves, and then integrate it into their playing style. And if you put these things together, enormous talent pool, determined approach to improving their own skills and acquiring foreign skills, that's what makes China world beating at table tennis. And it, and actually, and it outweighs all the problems of corruption and so on that might be within the table tennis world. They don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. And, and I think there's an analogy there to the economy, right? So China's economy yeah. has corruption. It has political infighting. It has an education system which is kind of mechanical and doesn't encourage free thinking. But it also has the biggest market in the world with 1.3 billion people, which means they can have enormous economies of scale. And it has a determined approach to developing skills and technology at home and also learning from, or if we're going to be less charitable, stealing foreign technology and expertise. And when you put these things together, you've got a kind of the potential for a world-beating growth machine. It's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a really good an analogy. I just wanted to move on to that debt problem that China has that you talked about at the start. And you really open your book with that and Xi Jinping himself making a speech to policymakers two or three years ago, exhorting them really to tackle this problem. Just for our listeners, can you put into perspective how serious the debt problem had got in China and how they're trying to address that now. So if we go back to 2008, China's debt to GDP ratio was about 140%. If you fast forward to 2015, 2016, debt to GDP had risen all the way to 250%. And if we look around the world and we scan the history books, we can't actually find any country that took on as much debt as China as quickly as China. But we can find a number of countries, Korea ahead of the Asian financial crisis, the US ahead of the Lehman shock and the great financial crisis, 
Greece and other European countries ahead of the European sovereign debt crisis, it took on a lot of debt, less debt than China, but still had a huge shock, still went into recession. So the fear in China is, well, they borrowed even more, and they borrowed even more quickly. So surely they're going to have a day of reckoning as well. And that was the problem which Xi Jinping and China's other leaders were grappling with uh, in 2016, 2017. And what they did was, I think, sort of fairly extraordinary. They didn't just allow lending to continue increasing. They didn't allow the shadow banks to continue expanding at a torrid pace. They decided to try and change the trajectory. And they launched what in China is called the deleveraging agenda. Now, it's not mission accomplished. China managed to stabilize its debt to GDP level. It didn't manage to bring it down. But I think it's actually rather remarkable that they weighed in early, right? They looked ahead. They saw that this wasn't a sustainable trajectory. And they took meaningful and painful steps to address the problem before it blew up. That doesn't guarantee they're going to evade a crisis, but it gives them a fighting chance. So policymakers have been skillful enough so far to keep things moving along okay and tackle this debt problem. But of course, now the Chinese economy does face a couple of really big problems that I want to ask you about. The first one is the trade war and the worsening relations with the US. I guess predictions that the trade war would be really harmful for China haven't quite come true. I mean, Donald Trump himself said trade wars are easy to win, and that hasn't really turned out to be the case. But how much of an impact has the trade war had on China? How much of a problem will it be if that gets even worse? So the trade war certainly wasn't a positive, but in the light of the sort of enormous COVID shock that we've seen in the first half of 2020, the blow to growth that we saw from the trade war maybe shaved 0.3-0.4% off of China's annual expansion really doesn't look that serious. What is troubling is recent signs of a further darkening of US-China relations. Now, even back in 2018-2019, when the Trump administration were putting tariffs in place and putting sanctions on Chinese firms, Tensions between China and the U.S. were were clearly high, but the objective for the U.S. was to use these punitive measures in order to maintain a positive trading relationship with China, right? The ultimate objective was to cause China to change some of its behaviors, like IP theft, like market access controls, so that trade could continue. The messages that we hear coming out of D.C. in the last few weeks in a speech from Secretary of State Pompeo, a speech by Attorney General William Barr, uh, a speech by National Security Advisor uh, Robert O'Brien, really paint a much darker picture of US-China relations. They paint a picture of an existential struggle between a US and a China, which are kind of fundamentally opposed and fundamentally different. So we'll see whether that's just rhetoric or whether Mm. that turns into policy. And of course, we'll also see what happens after November if we get a Trump 2 or Biden 1. But on its face, the the rhetoric coming out of D.C. suggests that actually things continue to deteriorate. I mean, the the election is going to be 
crucial, but it does seem that there is a broad hostility in the US towards China now. The other obviously big challenge that China faces, as do pretty much every country around the world, is the pandemic and the aftermath of COVID-19. What's your assessment of how China has come through the pandemic and how much of a problem it's going to be for the economy in the near-term future? So I think I think the short answer is we'll see, right? We are not out of this yet. China seems to have controlled the pandemic, but as the recent outbreak in Beijing shows, there's the possibility it will come back in large parts of the rest of the world, including here in the United States. The pandemic continues to rage uncontrolled. Uh, so we're not out of this yet. But when we look at China uh, and we look at what happened in the first half of the year, well, it was a severe stress test for China's economy and financial system. We had state-owned enterprises go from profits to losses. We had real estate developers who couldn't sell any homes, and so they made a loss. We saw local governments who ran out of tax revenue and ran out of land sales revenue. And these are the biggest borrowers in China's economy. So if we were going to see a financial crisis in China, if we were going to see a day of reckoning, it should have come in the first half of 2020. And obviously it didn't. Yes, there was a big problem. GDP contracted, but we didn't see a financial crisis. Why is that? Well, I think it comes back to some of those sources of strength that I identify in my book. In particular, I think the strong savings rate and the capital controls, which mean all of those savings end up in the domestic banks. Stay in China. Exactly. They stay in China. And that means the banks are really well funded. And that means that when you have a short term shock like the COVID shock, the banks can say to the borrowers, look, we know you're in this crisis. We're going to give you forbearance. You don't have to pay us back this week or this month or even this quarter. You can get back to us in the second half of the year. And so I think those kind of those hidden sources of strength for China, which we don't pay enough attention to in our analysis, actually served China's economy and China's financial system really well in the first half of 2020. So one last question for you, Tom. I mean, that strength, as you say, of the Chinese economy, the fact that it's relatively closed off still to the rest of the world, at least in important respects, could also potentially be a weakness. I mean, there is a temptation then, if you keep everything nicely at home, that you never quite address the fundamental problems that you need to address for the economy to pick up and grow sort of at its full potential or faster than otherwise. And there's a further danger that it starts slowing, that growth really kind of grinds to a slowness, the kind of which we saw in Japan, really, after the early 1990s. How much of a worry do you have that China faces that kind of Japanification, if you like? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think broadly speaking, we could say there's three potential paths forward for China. There is a kind of a glide path from 6% growth down to 4% growth in 2030. That requires continued reform, continued opening, continued gains in efficiency to offset the drag that is coming from a shrinking working age population. Then there's the financial crisis path, something which looks like a Lehman shock for China, where a big bank falls over and the financial system collapses and you have a deep recession and a painful recovery. And then there's the third path, which is kind of the Japan path, where 
you've got a shrinking working age population, you've got failures of reform, you've got a more hostile global environment with the US imposing tariffs and other countries looking at China with greater suspicion, and you have a failure of reform. And so China doesn't glide from 6% down to 4%, they kind of slump down to 1-2% growth and then stay there for a protracted period. That is certainly possible. And the reform momentum in China is certainly not as strong as it was in past periods. And the trade tensions with the US are an additional significant risk. So why do I think the glide path is more likely than the Japanification path? Well, one important reason is where China is in the development process. Uh, so Japan, in 1989, when it began its lost decade, was already at 85% of US GDP per capita. So Japan had already learned the most advanced technologies and diffused them through its economy. China is only at 30% of US GDP per capita. So what that means is that China has a lot of space still to catch up by learning new technologies and spreading the use of those technologies more widely across the Chinese economy. Tom, thanks so much for that. As you say, we will see what happens next. But for anyone who wants a, a really clear guide on how China's economy works and what has kept it going all these years, then do turn to Tom's book. It really is a terrific read. And Tom's one of the most lucid and clear thinkers and writers on China's economy out there. Thanks once again for your time, Tom. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Thank you to Vincent Nee and Rebecca Bailey, my colleagues on the Asia Matters podcast. You can reach us at asiamatterspod at gmail.com on email. And for Twitter, we're at at asiamatterspod. Thank you once again to Alexander Lestrange, who did the music for Asia Matters. And we hope to bring you more episodes in the future. Please keep listening. Thank you.